Have you ever spent time looking for someone? Whether that's an old friend from high school and so you hop on Facebook to see if they're on there or, or even if you're planning on meeting someone and, and it's a, a place where it's very crowded and you have to look for them in the crowd. If you've ever had to go to the airport and pick up someone you've never met, uh, it's always a daunting experience. Uh, when I was in college, I did a, a month-long internship in Germany with a missionary that I had never met in person. I only talked through through email. So it was daunting to land in Frankfurt in a foreign country and look for someone I've never met. Police search for people using DNA and eyewitnesses. Movie producers search for talent with videos that are sent to them. Historians search for facts with the records they have available. A favorite type of movie and television, it seems today, is the, the whodunit, right? The, the, the movie that you search for clues and evidences so that you can decide who the culprit is. Uh, I understand there's a bunch of board games for the same mentality, games that I dislike very much. Just give me Uno, okay? Uh, but the games you spend hours asking insightful questions to find out, I, Ask Joe Rudder and Aaron Peterson. They'll help you out there. But uh, I got a list of games. Um, but the whodunit, the, the finding someone else, uh, understanding who, who the person is. Have you ever mistaken, though, someone for someone else? Maybe in a crowd you see someone from a distance, and so you just you make a beeline towards them and get close and realize, oop, they're not who I thought they were. I read an article this week that talked about a 24-year-old woman in China, who is constantly mistaken for someone else. And until later, much later, she, she find out that she had an identical twin, that they were separated at birth. And they happen to live in the same city. Uh, maybe you've, though, had a friend that you thought you knew, and, and they turned a different direction. They, they turned out to be someone different than you thought they were. You're close to them, something happens, and now they're, they're much different they're not the person that you first got to know, got to know, and you're confused, you're lost, whether it's a friend or maybe sometimes if you're dating someone and, and you realize they're starkly different than they were at the beginning, and you have expectations you had for this person and they don't line up now. What do you do with those questions of doubt, with uncertainty about them? Let me ask this morning, are you sure about Jesus? Do you really believe he is who he says he is? You've perhaps heard about Jesus your whole life. Your parents taught you about him. Your Sunday school teachers taught you. But do you really believe that you can base your whole hope in him and on him and he won't let you down? I'm not asking if you're a skeptic. Skeptics really never, from my definition, truly have any faith. No, I'm asking, are you sure about Jesus? Or has been something in your life about him that makes you wonder? What do you do with your questions about Jesus? Where do you go with your doubts? This morning we come to a story in Luke 7 where we find someone who is well known and is struggling with doubts. And we see Jesus' response to him that builds faith. So here's the main idea. God is patient with everyone who doubts, but his patience will eventually run out for those who do not trust in his son. 
God is patient with everyone who doubts, but his patience will eventually run out for those who do not trust in his son. The whole of, of Luke's gospel is to be reassured on who Jesus is. If you remember back in chapter one, Luke has come to write an orderly account most, to most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So John is, is really, in this passage this morning, a representative of the reader of, who also needs reassurance on who Jesus is. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you've come here or you've logged online and, and you need reassurance. Friend, the gospel of Luke is for you. It's the point of this gospel. And for you to know you're not alone. So we're going to look at verses, uh, verses 18 through 35 this morning in Luke chapter 7. So if you haven't turned, turn there. There's three different sections here. It, it mixes the, a pronouncement in verses 18 through 23, a discourse in verses 24 through 30, and a parable then of verses 31 through 35. And there's three different views that we have here in this, in this passage, and it's going to be my outline. First is John's view of Jesus. Second is Jesus' view of John. And third is Jesus' view of this generation that he's ministering to. So let's look at Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. This is John the Baptist. We come here in verse 18, communicating to Jesus, through his disciples, doubt. He's, he's, he's communicating doubt. It could be, and, and some have, have, have wondered if he's just doing this to train his disciples. I, I, I don't think so, um, but we'll see as we walk through it. And, and remember John, he, we, we get some explanation of him earlier in the gospel. Just a few months earlier, he had, he had been preaching about Jesus' coming. He was preparing the way for the Messiah, and he was bold in his preaching, calling men and women to repent of their sins and to believe in him. And he called out to the religious teachers, calling them a brood of vipers, knowing that the wrath of God was to come. And now you hear John sending word to Jesus through two disciples asking, are you the one? Are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? And, and I began to wonder this week, what's going on here? What, what would bring John to this point in his life to doubt who Jesus was? Why would he ask such a question to Jesus? His, his cousin his, his Messiah. Well, first, John's a man. He's not supernatural. He was human, like you and me. And perhaps John, like the multitudes, was expecting a radical overthrow of the Roman government. And, and what's Jesus doing now? What are they looking at the last few chapters? John's disciples report to him that he's healing people. And he's moving from town to town, restoring people. And, and was Jesus really bringing God's promise with his style of ministry right now? This is not the style that John expected. For John, he preached fire and brimstone. And here's Jesus, meek and lowly. 
healing people? And was John frustrated by the lack of political organization to overthrow the Roman oppressors? It seems that way. See, where is John when he's writing this? Why can't he come? Well, he's in a Roman prison. And and Jesus, wasn't Jesus in, in, in Isaiah's gospel, chapter 61, he's to free the captives from prison. And so from John's seat in prison, the Messiah wasn't supposed to come and show mercy to a Roman army official, the centurion servant. I mean, doesn't Jesus know that Rome is the enemy? The Romans are, are holding John captive. And, and Jesus is seen, it's reported back to John that he's helping them. What's going on? See, John's hesitation seems not to stem from a, a, a failing faith, but from his failure to see Jesus playing the role of a fiery reformer. John believed that the judgment was imminent and the execution of God's wrath would follow shortly. But Jesus doesn't seem to be making any effort to fulfill that half of the expectation of John. John expected a different ministry. Jesus was coming to make all things new, and it wasn't happening the way that John thought. I mean, there were big issues for God's people. These weren't small matters. And so you can think, yeah, go ahead and heal mother's, or Peter's mother-in-law and open the eyes of the blind, and great, go for that, Jesus. But what about the big issues? When, when is Jesus going to start putting away the oppressive government? What about abolishing evil rulers like Herod? What about giving independence for God's people? How could Jesus convincingly claim to be the answer to the world's problems if he failed to do these things and merely contented himself with saving and healing individuals? And while I do believe John is doubting here, he also knew the right thing to do with his doubts. When you doubt Jesus, where should you go? You go right to Jesus. You know, I, I feel like in this culture, in this time, we hear these stories, I hear a lot of them, of this deconstruction of faith, of people that were trained, that were a part of the church, and they move away, and they never go back to Jesus to find answers. And friends, if you're doubting or having uncertainty and you don't go to Jesus, you're going to find different answers that don't align with the scriptures. And what does John do when he doubts? When John has uncertainty, he goes right to the source. And since John couldn't leave prison, he sends two disciples in his stead. You know, you don't stew in your doubts. You go to the Savior. And shockingly, we don't find Jesus getting angry over the questions of doubt from John or his disciples. You know, the question, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? You know, the noble human reaction to this line of questioning would be to retaliate with, with criticism about that person. What do you mean, am I the Messiah? Of course I'm the Messiah. Have you been paying attention? Aren't your eyes opening? Aren't you listening? Aren't you watching what I'm doing? What's wrong with you? I am the Messiah. Why would you doubt me? And and we would get hot and bothered. I would, by the questions of doubt. But not Jesus. We don't see that way at all. I'm simply amazed at Jesus' response. He doesn't respond with anger 
or annoyance. Instead, he shows grace to John and his disciples and says, hey, hey, hold on a moment here. Just hold on, he says. Stay here, pay attention. I'll show you who I am. Look at verse 21. In that hour. You have questions, you have doubts. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus doesn't respond with anger or annoyance or pride. He shows them exactly, again, who he is and why he came. And then Jesus responds to John and tells them to remember what the scriptures say. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus here is quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 26 and 35 and 42, all in one sentence. And then in Isaiah 61, like he did earlier. And he's connecting here the prophecy hundreds of years earlier now to himself. Right now, he's saying, I'm real, John. I am who I said I am, and I've come to do what God has called me to do, and you need to believe in me. You need to trust me. I really wonder, though, if John's struggle seems to be the last half of that verse in Isaiah 61. If you remember weeks ago when we were in uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus stopped short in, in, in the preaching of Isaiah 61. It says in Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. He doesn't quote the rest of verse 2 that says, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. See, there would be a time for judgment. But today wasn't that day. This day was bringing good news to the poor and to heal. And the day of vengeance hasn't come yet. We're still waiting for that day. Jesus is, in effect, telling John that now is a time for healing and patience and forgiveness and good news. And Christ insisted that the preaching of the gospel to an individual must take precedence over executing of God's judgment on the wicked in general and on the unjust governments in particular. There would be a liberation for everyone who was captive. And maybe John thought, hey, hey, that's me. I'm in prison, Jesus. When are you going to come free me? And why am I here? I've been faithful. I've been leading the way. Now I'm sitting in prison. What about me? But Jesus doesn't explain that to him. Do you know why? Do you know why he doesn't tell him? Do you know why he healed the blind and the deaf and the lame and raising people from the dead and preaching the gospel to the poor and yet he doesn't set captives free? Do you know why that day was not the day of vengeance? Because he's going to have to die to set captives free. And Jesus hadn't done that yet. Everything in our world, everything in our Christian faith hinges on that day. The day when Jesus died to make us eternally free. And that day was coming for Jesus. Soon he would turn the path toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. But it wouldn't be that day. And so John wouldn't be freed from an earthly prison anytime soon. Instead, he would 
die there at the hands of Herod. But eventually John would be free. This day Jesus responds to the disciples and says, look at what I've already done and look what I've done in fulfillment of the word. Believe in me and you will understand one day what all this means. And then Jesus ends here in verse 23. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. These words come from Isaiah also. And he's pressing the point now and he asks, are you offended by me? You know, people stumble over Jesus all the time because they believe that he should behave in a different way. They stumble at what Jesus does and doesn't do. And when Jesus came, many people stumbled over his words and his actions. But ultimately, people are offended by Jesus because they're offended by the very idea that they need Jesus to be their Savior. And friends, your only hope is to trust in Jesus and you will never be ashamed and you'll never be disappointed when this life is over. I think there's something for us to learn here in this first section, in particular about doubt, about uncertainty. Parents, uh, we need to remind our kids, grandparents, remind your grandkids that we will not always be here and we need to train them to go to Jesus We need to warn them of the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. And the narrow way is only found in Jesus Christ. And so parents, when your kids begin to doubt, don't freak out. You don't save them. Send them to Jesus. I think we need to remind those parents that we're not the Messiah. Jesus is. And so we send to him with their questions and we go with them to the word for answers. And we go to Jesus and we follow him. Don't reassure your kids with their earthly work. Don't bust out their baptism certificate. Don't remind them of the prayer that they prayed and that you were there and you say, don't you remember the prayer? It sounded really genuine. Don't do that. Please don't do that. You walk with them to Jesus and you help them remember the gospel to remind them of Jesus as we read in the Bible. See, Jesus gives John evidence not so John could remain doubtful or unbelieving but so that John would remain certain of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, the object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. What more solid thing can we latch on to than the truth of the Bible? And so we need to run to the word. We, we, all, we need to bring our kids there and we need to dwell there. We need to look at Psalm 27 and just meditate on that, that chapter or 2 Peter 1 or Ephesians 1. And those passages will instill faith in who God says he is. And friends, to all of us, The way of happiness is not to give in to your doubts. The way to happiness is to answer your doubts with the evidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Never treat your doubts with certainty. Always doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Never let your doubts have the last word. 
If they are truly doubts about Jesus, then seek answers on which to stand. Find evidence. Follow the evidence to the truth and build certainty with the truth. Because that's the life that Jesus blesses. So friends, if if you have doubts, I want you to know you're welcome here. If we're all honest this morning, we've all had doubts. We've all struggled with uncertainty. We've all went through suffering like John does here. And we might even go through more of it, pressed into corners that, that we feel like there's no way out. And you may lose someone that you love. You may lose freedom and joy and peace in your life. And it may cause you to have doubts. But what do you do with your doubts? You run to Jesus. You run to his word. See, doubts make us short-sighted, but faith gives us the long view. And so you read about what God has already done. You go back into the Old Testament and see the faithfulness of God, and then you trace it forward to to the New Testament. And he is faithful, and he never never leaves his people, and he never will. So trace the path, and, and you'll see that he's coming back for us, and that he'll make everything new. This is why it's vital for us, church, to read the Bible. I'm not going to grow tired of reminding you of this, okay? And I'm shocked to find out that not as many do it. But we need to read the Bible. That's why we announced it. That's why we're we're challenging you to, to read through the Bible in 2021 as a church family. Because your certainty will grow in God as you spend time with him in his word every day. And so as you read the Bible, you spend time in the Old Testament, especially in this plan. You'll, you'll spend time in the Old Testament and then the New, and you realize all the wrongs will be made right. You realize that our world is, is going in one direction, and we know who's in charge by reading the Scriptures. And so we keep pressing into Jesus Christ. So friends, keep reading the Word. Doubt your doubts, believe your beliefs. And, and Jesus is faithful to keep you through this, friends. So, that's my first point. It was the long one. Second one's much shorter. Jesus' view of John, number two. Jesus now responds after he sends him away. He turns to the crowd and he does something very interesting. Look at verse 24. When, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing... And live in luxury or in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. See, after Jesus, after answering the, the questions of John, Jesus takes the opportunity now to give a public testimony of John and his ministry. This is a reference letter from Jesus for John, and it's a good one. John is weak, and he's doubting, and he's struggling, and Jesus doesn't pile on him. Instead, he vindicates him. He may be in prison, but it's, it's Herod who deserves to be in prison. John may be despised by the religious leaders of the day, but John ought to be the religious leader of Israel. And John isn't just any prophet. No, he is the prophet The whole Jewish community had been waiting for this prophet. He doesn't say that John is is the greatest prophet, but that there is none greater than John. And John didn't come and preach to tell people that they wanted to hear certain things and they would love it. No, he didn't live a, a rich and famous lifestyle. No, he came and he preached the good news because they needed to hear it. 
And what made John important was who Jesus was. Jesus simply wants the crowd to really understand who John is in order that they might be able to grasp who Jesus is. And if John was Messiah's forerunner, ding, 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 Jesus is the Messiah. And the people, one and all, have to put their faith and their trust in him and receive him as their savior, as their sovereign Lord. But then Jesus makes a surprising statement about us, our own personal privilege as believers in Christ. He says in verse 28, look there, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one, that's you, friends, as Christians, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I mean, what an amazing thing to say. And because of his witness to Christ, John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. Yet the newest and weakest Christian today is greater than John. That's what Jesus is saying. And why? How, how could he say this? How, how could this be true? Because if, if we've experienced the finished work of Jesus Christ, and therefore the, by the witness of the Holy Spirit, we know things that John could only dream of knowing. We know the mercy of Jesus in forgiving our sins through the cross. We know the power of Jesus in rising from the dead. We know the love of Jesus in the free gift of eternal life. And John only saw the beginning of what Jesus would do. We've been given the whole gospel. And in our knowledge of the cross and the empty tomb, we even have a fuller experience of Jesus Christ than John the Baptist did. We have a privileged place in history of salvation, friends. And we can't take this for granted. So we've seen John's view of Jesus and Jesus' view of John, but last year returns to the religious leaders. Look at verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. When some people heard the message of salvation, whether they heard it from John or Jesus now, they accepted it by faith, and they declared that God was just. In other words, they admitted that God was right about their sin and everything else. But the religious leaders rejected him. These are the fundamentalists of the day. They prided themselves on their obedience to God, and they wanted to be accepted by God through their own merit. And what does it mean they rejected the purpose of God? It doesn't mean that they frustrated God or frustrated God's plans. It means they rejected the gift of salvation which God freely and sincerely offers to everyone. God invited them to fulfill the true purpose of their existence on earth by repenting of their sins and placing their faith in him. And they rejected him. They wanted to live their own way. They had gone through some external, some formalistic ritual that they had developed themselves and they convinced themselves that they had another way of covering their sins and pretending that everyone else was the problem. And they're angry with Jesus for pointing this out. And they reject him. This still happens today. In fact, I'm certain it's happening right now even seated here in this room or watching online 
You've rejected Christ. You may have walked the aisle of a church years ago, but you, by your very life, have rejected the salvation given by Christ. Because you're convinced you must do something to earn salvation. You believe your obedience is what God looks for instead of faith. And friend, you're living like a Pharisee. Don't reject the free offer of salvation. Don't ignore Jesus. Don't be indifferent to him in your heart. Because Jesus is not the problem. John's not the problem. This church is not the problem. My preaching's not the problem. The problem is in your heart. And if you repent and turn from self-serving religion and trust in Christ, you will find him more gracious than you could possibly imagine. What more do you need to know about Jesus to trust and to follow him? Perhaps you still have questions that are rolling around your mind. Friend, you need to put your questions into words. You need to write it out, and it will serve you. And you will find the answers in the Bible. You will find the answers by looking at Jesus. And I implore you to find another Christian. There's lots of them right here. And ask them to read the Bible with you. And to take your questions to them, your, your doubts, your uncertainty. And they will go with you to the word to find the answer. Well, let's end this section here. Jesus continues to give his view of the generation. Look at verse 31. It's the parable here. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what... Are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All parents know what Jesus is saying here in verses 31 and 32, right? Even normally happy children have days where no game is fun. No food is good enough. No trips are interesting and no book is worth reading. But Jesus isn't talking about children here. He's talking about adults. These unhappy people stand at a sufficient distance from both ministries to criticize them and to justify their refusal to participate by attacking the lifestyles of these two men, of Jesus and John. And Jesus is, is likening this generation to an obstinate and stubborn child who's, who's always going to go against the group. And the same people who, who demonized John for not playing the weddings were scandalized by Jesus because he refused to play funerals. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, the way to gain God's blessing was to be good and to be religious. They're, they're never satisfied. They could always find something wrong. And trust me, after working in church ministry for 20 years, I know these people. They will find anything that's wrong and they'll let you know. Some say the church is too judgmental. And others say that same church is too soft on sin. Say, they say that the congregation is too friendly. And another say that they're not serious enough. We're, we're too intellectual or too simple. 
or, or, or you're too political, or you're not political enough. And as a pastor, I've heard it all. Trust me, I've heard a lot of it in 2020. And no matter what we do here on Sunday, somebody will be upset. Someone won't be happy. It almost happens every week without fail when I preach. Some are encouraged and others are annoyed. Usually those that are annoyed, let me know. Some are repentant and others are stubborn. And these are the same people here who were not satisfied with John and his approach to ministry and they're most certainly not happy with Jesus and the way he's doing it. They're never happy. Because here, these people didn't want to turn to God in repentance and faith. The plain truth is the natural heart of man hates God. The natural mind is at enmity against God. It dislikes his law, his gospel, and his people. It always finds some excuse for not believing, for not obeying. The doctrine of repentance is too strict for them, but the doctrine of faith and grace is too easy for them. And John, ba John the Baptist is, is too much uh, out of the world, and Jesus Christ is too much into the world. And so they find excuses to sit in their sin. See, the Pharisees would neither have the holiness and wrath of God nor the love and forgiveness of God. All they wanted was a God small enough to compromise and to pretend that their imperfect keeping of the law was adequate. A, a salvation small enough for their merits to earn it. And a doctrine of salvation that left the verdict of final judgment decidedly uncertain. They ultimately just wanted to be left alone. And like the Pharisees, there are always people now looking for some other savior. And they find an excuse for not believing and following Jesus. But the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with them. One of the most difficult things in the world today is to accept grace. It seems too easy for people. They want more. They believe there needs to be more. Either it's too easy or, or they, they say, you don't know me. You don't know how much I've sinned and so I need to do more. I need to have some sort of penance. And they miss salvation altogether. Friends, don't miss salvation. Don't miss Jesus. He's right here in the text, right here in Luke 7. Believe in him. Turn from your trust in yourself and turn and trust in him. Luke ends here in verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by those who accept Jesus. The children of wisdom are people who are justified by faith, who are wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And the way for us to be wise is to see our need of repentance, our need for Jesus, and to trust in him for salvation. So if there's anyone here that still has doubts, friends, you need to go to Jesus. You need to learn from his teaching. You need to meditate on his word. 
You need to look at Jesus. Look at his miracles. Look at his teaching and listen. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus and see his death and resurrection. And stop. Stop looking for someone or something outside of the Bible. Look to Jesus and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge this morning that we are weak, weak and, and frail. And sometimes we struggle with doubts for years. We've gotten so comfortable with uncertainty that we miss fruitfulness in you. And Father, we pray that you would admonish the idle and the lazy. That you would encourage those who are ready to give up. You would give help to those who are weak. And he would please continue in your patience with us all. Help us to see Jesus this Christmas season. Help us to trust in you and not in ourselves. And we pray that you would receive all the honor and all the glory in our life. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.